eating Choco Tacos and swimming in the shallow end of public swimming pools. Hello, and welcome to Listen Well, a Lovewell podcast. The Lovewell Institute for the Creative Arts is an arts education not-for-profit where students from around the world have been conceiving, writing, and performing original full-length musicals since 1989. It's November, Lovewell community. That means we're all feeling extra thankful lately, mostly because we get to have a bunch of days off from school and work pretty soon. Tonight, we're back with another episode in our Lovewell Spotlight series, where we sit down to bring you long-form interviews with legends in the Lovewell community. The interviews focus on the artists past, present, and future, exploring the role the Lovewell method has played in their development as an artist, but also how their own artistry has helped develop the Lovewell method over the years. On October 20th, 2019, we sat down with Lovewell Light Luke Catler, who is currently a co-producer of Slave Play on Broadway, which is the latest critical darling to conquer New York. We spoke with Luke about his journey as a Broadway producer, while also defining what it is a producer even does, as well as learning more about his time in school and his formidable years in Lovewell workshops as a student and staff member. Let's head on over to Lovewell HQ and hop in our time machine for our interview with Luke Catler. Luke, welcome to Listen Well. Thank you. How are you, Tyler? I'm so well, thank you. Is This is a welcome back situation, right? You have done an episode of the show before. Um, I, uh, I feel like I did... I think I provided some type of background commentary on something briefly, but I forgot exactly what it was. I think it was I think it was I was providing emotional support for Amber for something. Yeah. I don't remember exactly <laughs> what though. So maybe it's your debut, maybe it's your return. It remains yeah. uh, to be seen. But thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Um, this is the, the big question out of the gate. Um, it might seem a little out of left field, but I hope there is a point to it. Um, do you remember the movie Jack? With Robin Williams, uh, I I never saw it, but I know of it. Wasn't he a clown? The, the basic premise. So no, that that's Patch Adams. That's where he's the clown doctor. Classic, classic misconception. <laughs> <laughs> classic mix-up. This is the one where he um, his body ages four times faster than like uh, his he's supposed to. So he's forty years old and he's in the fifth grade. Oh. No, I, I guess I haven't heard of this movie. Okay, it's it's a big, crazy movie, but the director of it is Francis Ford Coppola. And so oh. the same guy who did The Godfather did the movie Jack. Um, He's such a strange career, Francis Ford Coppola, but maybe that's yeah. for another time. He also did that that really uh, strange Dracula with Keanu Reeves. Yes, the the Bram Stoker's Dracula with all yeah, these exactly. crazy practical we effects. We got the official and... Bram Stoker designation on that one. Yeah, good for him for bagging that one. Um, but I, br- I bring it up because uh, Francis Ford Coppola recently joined the collection of uh, you know older directors who are condemning the Marvel films as not being cinema. And so I think everyone wants to know, in, do you consider the Marvel movies cinema? Oh, my God. I consider the Marvel movies to be an, a, a, an interactive theme park ride more than a film. I actually don't. I actually, or, or more than cinema, rather. I actually don't. I've I've only seen <laughs> Doctor Strange. I think because I 
I heard that <laughs> I heard that it had that the effects were particularly unique. But yeah. I think that like the to call it cinema, it seems like a collection of famous people who are um, bantering and then um, like intermittent with action scenes. I but that it's it, it's maybe an unfair characterization because I, I literally know nothing about the Marvel Cinematic Universe or, or very little. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting to me of like these these directors who like so Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, who are like you know these aren't cinema, and I, I have no right to say you know that those people are wrong because they're you know they're everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But I find it interesting that like people like them who their films were considered not cinema and were controversial and were sort of game changing kind of movies. I find that interesting that like they are now in that position to like call something or to say something is not what others think it is, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I think that actually um, to that is that the designation of what, of what cinema is I mean, what they're defining it as, I guess, is, is cinema as an art form, whereas, like, I think that in a lot of ways, just to, to amend my answer a little bit, I think that a lot of ways that the, the the Marvel movies are the most classic form of cinema in that it is getting people together in the theater to share a common experience of being thrilled by large images on a screen. And so, like, in terms of it being the most artful, sure, maybe not. It's It's pretty rote storytelling, but it's not... To, to call it not cinema, I think is kind of, you have your head up your own butt a little bit. Yeah, right. And I feel like the it's it's like the closest example of like what Westerns were like when Westerns were at their their height, right? They were just like popular escapism. And it wasn't until 20 years later that we looked back on it and considered them art. And so maybe that's how long it'll take for these Marvel movies to sort of be considered art it, for people who don't consider them that already. I feel like any form of popular escapism we look back on from the, like from the black and white era, for example, we're just like, oh, that that must be art. They know something that we don't because these movies are so foreign to us. But like so many of those movies, even even silent films in particular, that we kind of that, that I feel like film students nationwide hold up as the as as the gauntlet of of high art because they're they're told through strictly visual means are um, actually they were popular cinema at the time, you know, they were, they were artful, of course, but like it, it was through a completely different visual vocabulary that they were playing with. Um, that, that was very of its time and popular for its time. But for us, we look back on it and, and hold it to some type of unique standard, similar to, I mean, the Francis Ford Coppola's of, of the world, like those are tour directors in the seventies. Like they were, obviously they were, it was very counterculture, very counter to the studio system, but they did, they were, they were in some type of popular conversation with each other that they captured a subset of the population that was looking for, cinema as an art form so that's like their version of cinema is not the, is not the purest version but it is it's it, this is just our i feel like the the marvel universe is a uh, our version of popular cinema that will be looked back on in decades as as the art that was definitive of its time and era i especially love that you brought up of how it is just bringing people back together to have that common experience um and i feel like that kind of thing is more important now than it has been in quite some time of finding some sort of common ground between people. Oh my God, absolutely. And I think that that's why when there's so much conversation about whether or not movie houses are going by the wayside with the, with the rise of streaming technologies, it's like 
I think that we will, we as people are always itching for a communal experience, particularly when it comes to the arts, however you want to define that. And I think that the, maybe the idea of cinema as an art form is, is, is being dumbed down a bit by so many remakes and like by, I mean, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is kind of a metaphor for just kind of like not good art, but it is, it is, it is a form of going to the movies is, is one of the most classic ways of coming together as people and, and sharing a common experience. And you're right. It does feel like it is sort of like being threatened by all of these streaming services. And like when Disney Plus did that Disney drop of all of the like content that's going to be on their platform, it's terrifying because there is there's so little excuse to leave the house. But all the more important to go out and see movies or do what you're doing, which is going out and creating an excuse for people to go sit into a theater, because that experience can't be compromised or um, replicated at home with a streaming service. And that's also part of the, so when I first moved to the city, I was part of my, I was really excited about potentially moving. I mean, I've been the theater person my whole life and I was thinking about moving into the film and TV space, partly from like being in New York where, where theater is so much more prevalent, but also from like a fundamental values perspective is I think that like there is nothing in today's age that can possibly replace going to the theater as a shared communal experience. Of course, going, of course, going to a movie theater is one thing, but in terms of like sharing the experience in the room with the actor, with the actual people who are who are telling the story, is it's it's so uh, deeply human and irreplicable. Even in I think I think going to the movies is is the next closest thing, but I don't think that they're they're certainly not mutually exchangeable. No, agreed, and that nothing compares to that experience. It's it's so much more similar to like going to a concert. Uh, than it is the, to going to the movies because of of how intimate it can feel in those moments. No, absolutely. And so that sort of is a great transition into our first sort of question here. And that's, what has it been like living in New York? Tell us about how you got to New York and um, what, how long have you been there? And what have you been doing in those couple years that you've been there? Sure. So um, I... I actually hated New York when I was in college. I had no interest in moving here. Um, I thought it was... I thought it was I, I'm, you know, fundamentally at, at heart, a, a sweet Jewish boy from the suburbs of South Florida. So it was very, it was always incredibly intimidating, despite having a social network in New York. And I would come and I'd just be exhausted by day three of being here and just be like, why would anyone want to live here? Everyone seems so sad. and Everyone's wearing black and rushing. And it was like, it just, the, the whole mythology of the city was like not attractive to me at all. Um, and so then when... When I went to college and I like I committed more to spending my time um, creating art and being involved in the theater scene, like New York started becoming, you know, in spite of myself, a much more attractive prospect as well as so I ended up upon graduating college, I moved abroad for about a year and a half. And then I was with the intention of coming back to the States. And I moved back to Florida for a few months. And I was looking for work in both New York and LA, knowing that I wanted to be in the entertainment world. Um, and New York just kind of became a no-brainer. LA seemed stifling, and and New York was. I just kind of like completely had amended my opinion by that point. I had spent a little bit more time there post grad, and so many of my friends and network lived here. And it was just like, I think it's very difficult to appreciate what New York can offer if you don't have a network of people that are already there to support you. Because it, it just having people um, already here or like having friends move with you is very much. It just makes a a massive and completely overwhelming space into something much more manageable. Yeah, well, when you go to such a big place like that, a place where you can feel so small and insignificant, when you have, 
you have to make it smaller for yourself, right? You have to find the ways that oh, you can make sure. it more manageable. You have to find your neighborhoods. You have to find your friends. And when you do that, you feel like it becomes a little more manageable. Completely. With the option of making it unmanageable, should you choose. Yes. Um, which is something that's really exciting about the city is that like, once you lock into that community, for me, it's been very much the arts and theater community. There's flexibility outside of that to then say like, you know what, tonight on Friday, I'm going to go to a comedy show rather than to go to the theater. You know, it's like that the options exist, but once you, once you lock into a community and you like are actually living a life here, then you can choose to step out of that, that community when, when you, um, when you see fit. But just going back, I got a job um, at a talent agency in New York. And so I was working in the mailroom which is like such an old school, ridiculously outdated concept, but it was- It's uh, it's like the most antiquated thing you can do in New York, right? Aside from getting coffee for people. It's (laughs) actually insane. I mean, that's literally part of the job. And it's like back in the day, it was, you know, like you were a butcher's kid from Newark and people, (laughs) and you know, your dad's friend would be like, hey kid, I like the cut of your jib, come work for me. And then they'd like go in the mailroom and like steal people's headshots and like you start your own side hustle and like, you know, steal the- or, or. chauffeur people the agents around in limos and then when they were at a meeting you'd take the limo out and and go chauffeur other people to be back and forth from the airport like it was just like all these like young uh hungry mostly men uh just devouring each other to try and climb up the corporate ladder but now the now the mailroom is kind of they've kind of leaned into this idea that the talent agency world kind of exists as the center hub of the wheel of the entertainment world and so they really lean into it as like a learning opportunity in terms of um, shadowing other agents because whether or not you want to be an agent, which I knew I did not want to be, it is a lot of the project building in theater, film, what have you, start at an agent, starts at an agent's desk. So it's a really invaluable experience to learn the logistics of how the business actually works so that you can then use those logistics as a tool to start making things. And so you 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 got this this gig at this talent agency uh, after your your time abroad or your time back home trying to figure out what you wanted to do but what did you or what were you studying in school or what were you doing at school that made you realize that you wanted to go into the entertainment industry in some way shape or form where was that spark so i mean i i mean you you and i have always bought i mean me and you many other people in lovewell have always bonded about being arts people fundamentally and like film dudes. Um, and so like in college, I came in as an English and film double major and uh, the film department was super esoteric and boring. And then the English department was like, I like didn't, it was also esoteric and boring. So I decided to uh, try other things. And, and at school we had to learn a language. So I, I ended up studying Italian um, as my main major. And then I, uh, st- took basically the theater classes that I wanted to because I, I've always been a theater lover and I wanted to learn it. I wanted to understand it a little bit more as an academic discipline um, as well as like help to, you know, polish my directing chops. I became much more active in directing in college. And my, so the thing that made me want to start producing theater on in a big way was my um, senior thesis. I adapted Dario Fo's Accidental Death of an Anarchist um, from its original Italian into a contemporary like American adaptation, which had never been done before. It had been it had been translated to English English, like the Queen's English, and was performed on the West End. But it had never been there was never an uh, or at least there had been an English translation, but there hadn't been at least in the last like twenty years or so there hadn't been an American English translation. And so I loved the play in Italian, and I it was very farcical and very very like 
silly and very much fit with my ethos as a, as a director and um, very political as well. And so in doing that, I, I adapted the show with the intention of producing and directing it. And I had never produced anything before. And I, and I found the aspect of creating the, of assembling the creative team and strong arming people into giving me money to, for my show and giving me space for my show to actually be something that was both uh, fit my sensibilities really well, as well as like was a really fun challenge about making a, building a show from the ground up. You know, the, the producer is the one who's responsible for, for the entire project. And so that was like something that really suited me really well. And so I knew that I wanted to, to explore producing a little bit more. Um, and that's, that kind of was what led me to New York and ultimately what led me to um, the talent agency and beyond, which we can get to. And so, you know, we've, we've said this word quite a bit and I feel like we see this word a lot. We hear this word a lot. Um, a producer, whether it's on a television program, a film, uh, a, a piece of theater, like you said, they're in charge of everything from the ground up. I think sometimes it's, can be, it can be hard to wrap our head around what that word means because, like you said, they're in charge of everything. It's so all-encompassing. Yeah, exactly. What does a producer do? Yeah, no, and it's, it's so funny because a lot of people are so – like come to me with their tail between their legs being like, I don't know what – like that sounds cool, but like what does it actually do? Do yeah. you just raise money? <laughs> and, uh, and it's – I think that it's, a, it's like a cultural misconception that a director is the, is the head of a project. And this is not me this is not me pluming my feathers as a producer but the the producer the director is the artistic head of a project so we'll take for like a broadway show for example is a producer will take the material and then hire the director and hire the design team and kind of oversee the entire project and if they are a creative producer at like a higher level then they are very much in the room with the director and the writer breaking the story and kind of making sure that all of the parts are working together to, to and they, and they, they oversee the day to day as well as obviously I mean in shows that can can cost a great deal of money they're also kind of like the CEOs of the shows and kind of and uh, build the shows from the ground up from a financial perspective but um, at a high enough level producers in in theater will use that money as a tool to then um, assemble a creative team and take a script and uh, adapt it into something that is that is you know, from, from, from page to stage, so to speak. Um, and they, they're, they're the, they're the person who oversees the entire project from literally day one before the director, um, uh, until closing night. And so in, in your average day as a producer, you might wake up and have a phone call with a director and then have lunch with the designer while then talking to a theater company about how much it's going to cost to rent a space to then talking to a newspaper, it, it's 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 got to be a lot to deal with. Yeah, I mean, so uh, they they hire the marketing company for a show. That's that, that's a perfect snapshot of a of a producer's day, by the way, Tyler. So it's like, and if they're if they have multiple shows in production, they'll also be going to rehearsal and overseeing rehearsal. They'll also be sitting in, um, you know, they'll be sitting in a writing meeting uh, with with story points on a big whiteboard and deciding along with the writer and the director if they're you know, conceiving a musical from scratch. If they're conceiving a musical from scratch, they'll decide all together um, what the story beats are going to be. So they, the producer is like a really hands-on role. Obviously, a big part of it is allowing the director and the writer the space to create together. But the producers, which is like a, it's a huge, obviously, like you don't want to be a producer who, who considers themselves a quote-unquote 
considers themselves a quote unquote um, creative producer who is then going to drive the ship creatively. You, the, a big part of that job is to understand that like you are hiring people who are better than you at these jobs in order to make them happen. And your job is to oversee that process. It's, it's, it's ultimate problem solving. Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head with what the day-to-day actually looks like. It, it's, it's incredibly varied. Yeah. Um, and it's truly different every day, but it's, it's, it's yeah, making sure a project's happening. You know, going the, the producer I currently work with will go to three different rehearsals for three different shows he has in production over the course of a day. You know, he'll stop in for two hours and during this dance number, he'll say like, uh, this logistically doesn't make sense. You know, like this, this as an audience member, I'm not vibing with, like what can we do differently here? And that's, he'll feed those notes to the director and then the director will, will shape the piece from there. And so you go from, from school to, uh, this, this talent agency and what, where do you go from this talent agency where you sort of have your first professional taste of what it means to be a producer in New York? Yeah. So, um, I actually went so I was in the mailroom for about six months, and then I worked for a feeder agent in the in uh, the talent agency's feeder department. So there was about seven feeder agents, and there was only one person who actually represented actors. Every all the other theater agents represented directors, choreographers, and playwrights. Most of which were at like the Broadway, off Broadway level. And so my boss represented. She was kind of an elder stateswoman in terms of like her knowledge of the theater industry, and so like she acted as a producer in a lot of ways in which people would come to her for advice on how to make a project happen from the ground up, which is kind of atypical for, you know, agents represent the creatives who then, and then like work out the like uh, artist deal on, on a, on a commercial project. And so like she did that as well, but she also acted very much as a producer in terms of like basically advising how to make projects happen. Um, and so that was something that I found really fascinating and like something that I was, you know, a luxury of working in that position is you get to be on every one of their calls kind of as like the silent voice in the background, just listening in on the calls. It's kind of one of the wonderful things about working at a talent agency. So she, you know, she would speak to producers who were struggling with X aspect of a show and she would be giving them advice on like how to make the, you know, I'm not going to drop specific show names, but like how to, how to make this, this Broadway show like Lynn should play Hamilton. Exactly. Exactly. It's like that. It's that kind of thing. It's like, have you thought about putting Lynn in for three weeks? And they're like, oh, wow, that's going to save the whole thing. And it's like, those, those decisions are made by somebody. And so from there, I knew I didn't want to be an agent. So I worked there for about two years. I worked for her for a little over a year. Um, I knew I did not want to be an agent. And I, I wanted to use that experience there as a, as a jumping off point to start producing. And so I started working for a Broadway producer who her name is Barbara Whitman and she produced Fun Home. And so I was her associate um, producer and just kind of was like helping her on her day to day. She had some other projects that were swirling about. Um, and I worked for her for about six months. And then now I work for a different producer. Um, his name is Scott Rudin and I'm his feeder assistant slash associate. And I work with him on all of his various projects as well as I'm a producer outside of that. Yes. And uh, working on my own projects. And so um, you've, you gained all this experience. Now you've seen how people do it. You see the things that you like, the things you don't like. And is the first sort of producing project that you take on your own, is that Good Cooks or is it something predate this? Yeah. So that was, I'd say Good Cooks in terms of like my experience in New York. That was the first thing that really like my friends and I built from the ground up um, from a, from a 
creative standpoint and like a logistical standpoint. Tell us all about it. Good Cooks is a comedy show that I produce and host in, in New York. Um, we actually have our anniversary show this coming Thursday. It's going to be our 12th show that we've done in New York. Ooh, tickets now on sale. I know, right? Goodcooks.com. Yeah. Actually, I don't even think we have a website. Go to Facebook. Go to my Instagram. So we, we do a show every month that's a completely ground up um, organic sketch show that is, is completely new every month. Um, and we invite on somebody in the food world, uh, whether they be restaurateurs or publicists or cooks or whatever it may be, um, or sommeliers. We have a lot of sommeliers on. And we interview them about their work and their passion and how they actually ended up in the food world and, and what their day to day looks like. And then we write comedy sketches uh, and prepare them with a we have a wonderful group of like 20 collaborators we write and perform with and we write and perform these sketches that kind of both celebrate the person who is our guest for the evening as well as we interview them um and we it's just a celebration of food and and fun and, and theater and and comedy and we offer the audience uh food samples as well of whatever it is the the guest is hawking it's so brilliant. I mean, do, do where does that idea come from? Because it seems like it's the perfect sort of fusion of your personal interests, of your love of comedy, theater, and your love of Italy, which is so much about the food yeah. that's there, right? So who comes up with that idea? Exactly. No, it was an easy. It was a no brainer for me. Yeah. Um. So I grew it with two of my friends from school, and one of the the origin story is that one of my friends wanted to do a food podcast in which rather than watching a cooking show you listen to a cooking show and so you like listen to what lettuce sounds like or what salmon sounds like and i was like that i she pitched this idea to me and i was like i love you but that's inane and i do not like it. i'm i would listen to one episode i would listen to the first the intro and say what is this and turn it off um and so then she and then so that was me being a curmudgeony jerk and then she said to my other friend like i have this idea luke hates it like Let's talk it out. And then she and him discussed, like kind of parsed it out together and figured out what it could actually be. And so they invented the idea for Good Cooks together and then came back to me and were like, you suck. We came up with this awesome idea. Like, do you want to be involved? And we're going to make fun of you forever for being a naysayer. <laughs> let, it, let it be known. Uh, don't yuck someone's yum until you have a yum to uh, one-up them. That's going to be our uh, new t-shirt this summer. For uh, nice. <laughs> Don't yuck someone's yum until you have a yeah. yum to one-up them. That's, <laughs> that's in, the, in the spirit of Lovewell. <laughs> that is you being a good producer there too, right? Of like, you, you have taken in an idea and you've seen that it has some nuggets of, of interest in it, but that it's not quite there. And you were sort of doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is go back to the drawing board and then I'm in. I, absolutely. And, I, and I'm obviously like saying it partly in jest and like giving myself short shrift. Like they came back to me with an idea that was a little less fully formed. And I like, I, I was like, okay, I'll take it seriously. And I like asked them questions to help parse it out. And that is what a producer does is it's like the, the most useful weapon in the producer's armory is a, is their taste. And to trust their taste and to know what what they appreciate as an audience member and what kind of art they want to support and what kind of art they think is important to bring into the world. And so like I've refined my taste over time, of course, but like if I hear an idea that I think that does not vibe with me, I'll either say that's not for me or and that, that is a great idea. It is not for me, it is not of my taste. Or I will say that is a great idea that is of my taste, but let me help you develop it to make it um my my taste is not the end all be all. Let me help you develop it to make it more 
accessible to other people's tastes as well. You know, like the, the nugget of idea is there. I love, I love food and comedy. Let's figure out how to make this something that I'm excited to work on as well as something that I think people want to come see. Cause those aren't always, those aren't always the same coin. Yeah. Well, and I, I can't think of anything scarier than producing a comedy show in New York city where the most comedy in the world is happening. So like, where do you sort of find the continued uh, determination to do comedy in New York City? What is that like? So, frankly, I think the reason that it's it, that we um, that it's less scary for us that I think should be the ethos of anybody making making art together is that rather than be intimidated by the many options that exist outside of this thing we're doing, um, to uh, go into each show saying like we are here to collaborate and to make a fun show and to have fun doing it and to and we take it incredibly seriously but that being said is we are not we are uh we take it seriously without being completely serious um meaning like it's not every show is not life and death for us we want it to be the best show possible and we want it to be we want to have our priority is to know that this is a thing that we are doing for fun whether I mean whether it becomes a something that that is uh, something you do to make money or not, I mean if you if you go into it saying this is something that I think is important that I'm doing for the love of it and doing it for fun, it becomes much less scary because it takes the pressure off. And then once you're once we're performing, we're just like oh this is just like we're doing this for no other reason than that we love it. Like there is this is completely for fun for us. When it's it's I feel like consistently right the the best art that we encounter is the art that's made personal and made for the artist who's sharing it right of like oh, for if sure. you just make it for yourself then that's when you find a real audience when it's not when you absolutely become consumed by them but it's when you make what you want to make absolutely and i i think that you you really nailed it is like the is i think that you, you are really hard pressed to make earnest um quote unquote good art if you're not if you're not doing so um through honesty and through injecting your perspective into the world and i think that like when the three of us are creating our show together we're just like what do we think is funny like this is our show let's just do what we think is funny and if it's and if it's super weird and off the wall then like yeah we'll we'll have one for us and one for the audience like we still want to make it a successful show but like this is us. This is the three of us messing around and like creating something from scratch. And so we want to, we want to keep that in mind every every show. Even though we, you know, our shows are can be quite large. We've had, we have between like forty and eighty people come out to any given show. So like the stakes are high in that respect. But it's it's not, it's something that people are are we're here to celebrate being silly together. Well, and. Uh, you, you know, you, you also have, um, and I, I wonder if you feel this, but it seems like you sort of have this advantage going into projects like this because you've essentially been doing what you just described your whole life since you were a little kid with Lovewell, right? I mean, with with what we've done, with what we did as students and as, as staff members of just um, – being with your friends and playing around and making something that's meaningful to ourselves and then sharing it with people. Right. Oh my God. And like, as an aside, like the amount of, I mean, the level, uh, and what I've learned in level is like, so it's so clearly translates to good cooks period. But like I was doing I just, this is truly an aside, but I, I don't know if you even want to include it, but like I was 
doing a, I went to a retreat at my school that they like invited me back to speak to these um, seniors in college who are, uh, there's like a leadership program. And so I was kind of like arts guy coming back to talk to a bunch of people who are probably going to like computer science and government and finance. And I did a presentation about the importance of vulnerability and leadership. And one of the, th- one of my slides was just like, I, I wanted I taught them how to make to write a personal narrative as like a way to um, express strategic vulnerability in leading a group. And then I had each of the students write their own brief personal narrative. And before right, having them write their personal narrative, I was like, guys, let's go through the affirmations. And like these, and it was just, I mean, it wasn't directly related to the topic at hand, but it's, it was so, it was so transferable. Just like, you're, oh, you're, we're, we're about to get creative and intimate and personal. Like, let's let's go through the affirmations. Like, there's no better way to frame your creative mind. So, I, I mean, I in literally, I can't think of a single thing that I do in the city and beyond that does is not directly influenced by Lovewell. I I know that's a great aside and and a pitch for the program, but I I like I, I believe it sincerely. Well, and so walk us through your history as a Lovewell light. Take us back to the beginning. How did you first hear about Lovewell? And how did you sort of grow along with the program? Wow. Um, no pressure. The Spanglers. No, for sure. I mean, uh, uh, there's definitely, I think it was Dory and probably Eric at one point, but Eric Clemens and Dory Spangler. But we, they just had described, I was just kind of a already weirdo kid. And they were just, and we were, I was friends with Dory and they were like, let's, uh, you should, you should, Think about doing this program. I I was doing kind of like a like day camps around South Florida that was that were fine, but weren't really weren't as creatively fulfilling as I would hope they w- would have been. Um, eating choco tacos and swimming in the shallow end of public swimming pools. <laughs> so I started Lovewell when I was going into ninth grade, um, and I didn't really look back. I've been doing it. I mean, as a, as a staff member, it's, it's been on and off, but I was a student um, from ninth grade through my junior year. I did six productions as a student, and I've been a staff member in Sweden. I've been a staff member at Level Junior in Fort Lauderdale, uh, and I'm still super active with going to friends from Lovewell who is getting married weddings. Well, and you you and your, your peers and um... – I include myself in, in, in that category as well of like, but you especially, and um, you're just a couple years younger than I am. You sort of came into Lovewell during this new golden era. Oh, I mean, not to brag. We had shows like Daybreak, like Meridian, where it became more than just this silly thing we did with our friends that had meaning, but also we were able to translate them into stories that, have connected with audiences in ways that shows had not yet up to that point. Absolutely. And so how does, you know, you talked about your, you, you personally being this curator of tastes, but how does your taste evolving as a young artist, how did Lovewell affect that? And then how did you see yourself affecting Lovewell as your taste grew and developed through those years? That's a really great question. And I think the best, I mean, just taking the Daybreak and Meridian example, I mean, Daybreak as, as a, you know, as a really a problem play in terms of like exploring a societal ill and then talking about it um, through storytelling, through, through fiction. Uh, I think that was one of the, I mean, obviously I've always been a film buff, but like in terms of the, the theater, like that was one of, 
the few, I mean, that was the first thing I'd ever created that felt particularly political. And, and obviously every level show I've been involved in has, has many, many things to say, but this, this was like, we kind of decided collectively, like our prison system is broken and we need to figure out uh, our way to express that idea. And so that was one of the first real um, times that I found that my, my political, not, not like electorally political, but like my political and social ideas could be expressed through creating something that by all accounts is, is frolicking, you know, musical theater. And so it was, and so that's when I, when I went to college, I, I mean, I've always been curious about social politics and I ended up studying, I actually was a history major as well as an Italian major. And that's, I, I, I take the, I take theater as a, as a way to contextualize big social questions incredibly seriously as evidenced by my major, which was like about, you know, it was about kind of sticking uh, truth to power um, and uh, the corruption of the police. And it, it had a lot of different um, social ideas behind it, which aren't worth getting into, but like, it was very much, it was, I was using theater. I, I, I'm, I've always been really interested as a result of my time directly from my, my quote unquote golden era at Lovewell to um, say something with the, with the fiction that we're creating. Um, and so, and something that I think that I brought hopefully to, to, for Lovewell was, was enthusiasm for those ideas of like, we can have a musical that says a lot of things, of course, but we can have a musical that has like a central um, thematic uh, social message that we're trying to deconstruct and, and, and really have an opinion on. Um, Cause that's, that's really challenging. It's scary as a, as an artist to not only present a problem, but we, we, as, as young people, it's astounding. We, we presented the problem of the, of, you know, the, the, problems with the death penalty and with our prison system and we we took a stance on it and that's that takes a lot of bravery and i think that that's something that i hope my time at lovewell i was somebody who um was willing to engage with that with what was what i think can be scary in like a meaningful way well, and, and and not only to to talk about a problem and to give your your thoughts and feelings about a problem but then to discuss that problem in a creative way and by telling a good story right of like absolutely yeah yeah that's that's what i mean it's just like telling it through through fiction to contextualize it and make it much more digestible well, and then so as a young person with with the the socio-political beliefs that you have that you're developing that you're growing what is that like as a eighth ninth tenth grader what is that like sort of speaking those things into the world for the first time and like why did you feel okay doing that in a Lovewell workshop? My type, my early years at Lovewell, in particular, were were much less. I had much less of a of a social mind in terms of like or like a social political stance that I was that I was curious about putting into the world. So like, but I think that the the extent to which I felt supported by my peers in Lovewell creatively um, allowed me to comfortably explore that social political lens over time. So it started as like I was very honest to myself when I when I first started there, just like as a you know I loved being like the comedic supporting roles. Um, but then as I grew up into into an adult, I and I started developing political opinions. Like that level of support of people laughing at my antics really extended beyond um, beyond just creating something fun together, which is obviously important. But it, it gave me the courage to not only create something fun, but also um, to lean into having something to stay and taking a stance as an artist. 
um, which was really, it's, I think it's something really unique about Love Ball is that like you can, because a lot of people start when they're very young um, and then they grow into their political beliefs and political is very used very loosely. I just mean like their, their, their opinions on their perspective on the world. Level creates this this space where you can you can further explore it from from day one in eighth grade where your your politics are are much more simplistic to when you're a senior in high school and you're and you're you know coming of age as an adult in the world. And do you feel like you have been able to continue to find spaces like that where you get to safely share what you're saying, or now that you or sort of in this more professional world, how how has how have those rooms changed, or are they more similar than they seem? It's such a luxury to be able to exist in that space of safety. I mean, a, a big, definitely in the. I mean, I work in the arts, so like it's a lot of the of that community creates spaces um, socially where people can explore these ideas um, and and talk earnestly about their political positions, but like. I would say at at work, like in the professional world, it's it's really it's it's difficult to find spaces to further explore those ideas and like earnestly uh, feel supported by a community in, in like coming into your political opinions. So like a lot of my time working in New York, I've I've uh, my perspective on the world has changed a great deal. But a lot of that is working and then digesting with friends and family about what I've what I've learned that day. I would say it is like it's something it it is a real luxury though to um really bear down and do that, do that grunt work in love well of like self-actualization that it, through the support of everyone around you being excited to watch you do so. Well, now that we're uh, a good ways into our conversation, uh, let's get to the reason for the season. And that's the fact that you, Luke Catler, are a producer on the new Broadway show, Slave Play. Yes, I am. It's true. It's very surreal. It's, it's uh, I was you know, jaws all on the floor when I heard about it and when I saw, and it's so exciting for me as someone who lives very far away um, and has had like his eyes and ears sort of following this play for a while of um, being very interested in it and its sort of journey to the Broadway. But before we sort of talk about its journey, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what Slave Play is for our listeners? Um, of course. And I, I'm smiling right now because it's truly the most indescribable piece of art to ever yes. exist, which made it very <laughs> difficult have to, do it on a PG to podcast. pitch people. <laughs> and yeah, so uh, it's about people in, in time. <laughs> no, uh, Tyler, I, I, I imagine that you empathize with me that this is like, it's truly very difficult to describe. Yeah. But essentially it is a, it is a the, the simplest way I can describe it is it is a story about three interracial couples and how their relationship dynamics serve as a metaphor for America's legacy of racism and slavery. I think that's perfectly sad. Legacy of racism as a yeah, as a result of um as a result originally of slavery, but obviously um over many other things throughout the years. I think that that's very, like I said, very well said. And and based off what I've um, been able to read, and I've not been able to read the play yet. I would love to get to read it uh, if I don't get to see it m- myself um, at some point. But it's you know it, it made some big splashes when it was downtown. It's the playwright is Jeremy O. Harris. Um, mm-hmm. It's at the Golden Theater right now, and. Um, yep. 
it's because of those things, because of these sort of hot button, very volatile things that it discusses, and it does so in very shocking ways, it's made people respond to it in a way that seems very purposeful for what, what the playwright's going for, right? Of It's supposed to be a little bit Absolutely. of a shock so we can see these things that we're uncomfortable talking about. And, and it's just such a brilliant way to talk about these things that it, it gives me goosebumps um, just even today going back and, and reading some of the reviews of it, of just how cleverly written it is and um, from what I've read, how well performed and, and designed and acted. And, and it, it goes it, it, to just to your point, like it, it, it is shocking in many ways, um, but not ever to the point of exploitation where it's actually turning people away. It is shocking as a way to wake up the audience to the issues being discussed. And it, it, it has these shocking moments that I, that I think very much toe the line into unacceptable and inappropriate, but very much as a way to um, break down the, an audience member's um, preconceived notion or, 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 or comfortability level, really, um, with the topics being discussed, which are, let's just, I mean, from the most macro perspective, racism in America and many other things branch off. And so how does a play like this make it to Broadway. And when you think of this, the, your typical shows that make money on Broadway or the typical audience members who go to see Broadway shows, how on earth did you all manage um, to get this show where it is now? So that's a wonderful question. And I, I will answer it as briefly as I possibly can. Um, the, the, the reason that it can exist on Broadway today is, is twofold. Um, first of all, it had a stupid successful run at the New York Theater Workshop last season. Um, it was completely sold out. It was incredibly like I literally wasn't able to see it, and I and I and I literally my job is to see theater, um, and I wasn't able to get a ticket. And it was it was incredibly um, it was very pop cultural. Like there was a lot of celebrities were going to see it, and it was like very much in the forefront of the conversation. There was the, got, the whole story about Rihanna texting and people being upset about it. Oh, that was that was actually that was in the Broadway, oh, the Broadway. production, but yeah, that. that Exactly. Um, and there, it was very much like, it was just a, a hot ticket, whatever that means to you. It was just like very, very sceny, very, um, very much like of the moment is the only way I can describe it. And, and that all being said, is like, it also got truly like staggering reviews, um, saying it was some of the best theater ever produced in New York, saying it was, it was completely of the moment and like a, an absolute must see experience. Um, so it was a, a, a hard sold out run at New York Theater Workshop, which obviously a lot of the shows transfer from off-Broadway to Broadway, and usually it takes something being that well sold to transfer, um, particularly to convince a commercial producer that the show is going to be able to make any money on Broadway. And so that, let's put that aside. That's the first thing. The second thing is that Broadway right now, the changing landscape is such that it, and obviously there are gray areas in here, but essentially Broadway is separated into two camps. And this is similar to how we open our conversation about um, cinema versus um, the, the, the movie going experience of the Marvel universe. Um, it's very, and, I, and I'm not assigning judgment in either camp, although I imagine you can, you can, you can imagine where I stand. Um, there is a, there's a lot of, there's like the corporatization of Broadway and that like, there's, you know, there's, Disney obviously has always been a really large presence, but then a lot of a lot of Broadway shows right now are remakes of movies that were popular in the eighties and nineties, and it's very much like, oh, I as a tourist recognize that title, and therefore I will go see the show. 
And so in response to the, to broad, I mean, Broadway is always been a commercial enterprise, but in response to, um, so a, a lot of, a lot of Broadway theaters being taken up by really successful shows that aren't moving anywhere like Hamilton or Book of Mormon or whatever, it, it, it makes it the, the real estate being more limited makes it riskier to try new shows on Broadway. So it's, it's a much safer play to like put almost famous in there or to put, uh, Tootsie in there or to, not hating on Tootsie. It's a wonderful show. Um, or mean girls hating on mean girls. It's an okay show. Um, but like, so to, to put, um, these shows in there that, 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 that have a built-in audience. And so there has been a pretty direct backlash of a lot of, and particularly because we are living in a moment where everyone in America, no matter where you stand politically is paying attention to politics in a way that nobody has before, or at least since maybe Nixon. Um, like this is like, we're living in a particular cultural moment where people are, are engaging with social politics in a, in a way that is like, it, it is so everyday pervasive that, so the, there's been a, a direct response to these more corporate ventures um, that are like really challenging and completely unique plays, both thematically and formally. So, um, you know, what, there was a really popular show last season called What the Constitution Means to Me, um, was essentially a one woman show about this woman's changing relationship to the Constitution and how the Constitution systematically undermines women in this country. Um, and it was, you know, by all accounts, that is not a show that should have gone to Broadway. It was a one woman monologue about the Constitution. Like it sounded like an absolute snooze fest, but it was once the show actually, like it, it, it and it was pitched, it, or like the, the log line is that it's, it, it seems, it seems like a TED talk, but then you see the show and you read about it and it's, it was truly astounding. It's a wonderful, wonderful show. Um, it's so personal and so unique for what, what Broadway is and has been historically. And it was a massive success. And so the, the thing that was, so in these um, larger ventures, taking up theaters and like, and attracting um, people who know the movie, um, there's been a lot more quote unquote, like high art. And I say that kind of with my eyes being rolled, despite somebody who appreciates being somebody who appreciates high art coming in as a direct counter to, um, more explicitly commercial ventures and like and and stuff that that I think a lot of theater growing audiences are are truly hungering for, which is is challenging social material that's very contemporary and of the moment and will and will and will promise a theater going experience that will leave you changed as an audience member. So after Slave Play is this huge hit downtown, how do you, Luke Catler, come into the picture and your producing team? How do you all get involved? Sure. So I um, I knew the lead producer through just theater circles, just like through being involved in New York theater. You just It's a small community of people who are making Broadway shows happen. I mean, it's, it's relatively small to, in comparison to like the film industry. Um, so I just knew him through mutual friends. Uh, his name is Greg Noble. And he and I got lunch one day and we just like really liked each other. And I was like, we should be in touch. Like, I would love to work with you in some capacity. And he reached out to me about a month later and was like, listen, I'm like, I'm transferring slave play from off Broadway to Broadway. I'm trying to create like a young socially minded um, producing team. Um, and I would love for you to be involved. I'd like love. I think that you'd be a really valuable addition to the team. And I was like, absolutely. I'd, I've heard such wonderful things about the show. Let me read it and see if I vibe with it. And I, of course, did. It's, I mean, it's objectively astounding, but obviously that's not objective. But it, it is. It is. It's. It's a really. It's a flooring work if you are. Um, if you like that kind of thing. 
Um, and I said yes immediately upon reading it. And I was responsible for raising money for the show, um, a significant amount of, of the capitalization. And how, how, how do you do that? How do you raise money for a show? I mean, I can't raise money to save it's, my it's life. so difficult. Literally. <laughs> um, well, it's a, well, so a lot, of, a lot of young producers will, will be basically strictly money raisers on a show to kind of get their credits up so then they can start doing their own projects at like a larger level, uh, like a, at a commercial level, which is obviously part of my long-term goal. Um, so this, in this project, I was much more um, essentially just understanding the show in and out, understanding how, why the show belongs on Broadway, understanding what the Broadway landscape looks like and how this will fit in with the coming season and, and just explaining it to people. I, I spent countless countless hours on calls with many 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 people um many of whom may be listening right now uh and just talking about what what um what it means to be a broadway investor what what the the risks are involved what the potential advantages are involved why it's why it's important to do so what um and like just walking them walking many people who who completely reasonably because who would understand how to be what being a broadway investor means but like walking them through what actually what it actually means to be helping to make a bring a piece of art into the world um, and convincing them that it was a good idea, which some I was able to do for a couple of people. And how long is that process? So how long between the phone call of, hey, I want you on our team to saying yes to then making those calls to then knowing, okay, it's happening. What is that timeline? It was like, I, he reached out to me in like the mid middle of July and I finished my raise period, like buttoned up completely done October 3rd, I think. Wow. So it was, I mean, it, but it was a significant amount of money that I had to raise and it was you know, I, I reached for if I reached out to a hundred people, then five said yes, which is I'm happy about. That's all I need. And so, as that's all happening, do you get to see any of the rehearsals for the the updated production? Do you get to see the changes that they're making, or were there any changes? Yes, that's a great question. We we were as producers were privy to like uh, rehearsal reports as well as um, as well as uh, marketing reports as like and had input on, on how to brand and market the show. Um, they also uh, did a, they hosted like a day-long um, anti-racism workshop for the producing team um, where the director and the playwright were there and we were able to like spend the day discussing what, why, why we thought the show was important and what, um, and we, we, they flew in a person, um, a woman, to uh, basically give us a, lecture and seminar on on anti-racism um training and so that was like a big part that was something that the production teams took really seriously as well as we would sit in on the marketing meetings and discuss how best to put the show into the world and to bring people into it um and you know the good thing about this show is it was a younger producing team so like very much and it was a new the, the lead producer is very much a new producer so like he he had his ear on any of our ideas which was really um really helpful. Whereas like an old, a more elder statesman producer would be like, you just raise money for me, like shush. But in terms of the day to day, it, I was, I was not as involved in the day to day, admittedly, because I'm not the lead producer on the project. I was just, uh, I was a, it's called a co-producer, which is kind of like one tier below the lead producer. That's much more responsible for raising money and like bringing the message of the show into the world. And so now that the show is open, what has that experience been like for you? Um, I'm assuming you get to go to opening night. As the the response 
comes in and it, and it seems again that it's still this overwhelmingly impactful response and that people are having this meaningful experience that that you want to make in the theater that you help create what has that been like for you oh it's been absolutely surreal truly it's like that's the only word i can use is it's like it feels um i mean the show is important and i think the show is 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 um really really engaged in a meaningful way with the most contemporary strains of the conversations on racial relations in america and so like it's been it's felt significant from day one you know like seeing the i went to the invited dress i went to the first preview i went to opening and just like being at that opening night and seeing how more than anything just seeing how diverse of a crowd there was um, at opening night you know it's like it was it was the majority of the crowd is people of color, which like Broadway is not, is has not historically been a medium for people of color. It's for it's for like rich old white Upper West Siders. That's like what it was made as, and that is what it has been ever since in so many ways. And it's like this, you know, there was a slave play hosted a, a blackout for one of their earlier previews where literally every audience member had to be I don't know if it was had to be, but was like was um, self-identified as as black and it was you know they invited every living black playwright um and like and theater maker and it was just a it was a completely a celebration of, of blackness and about and as a way to acknowledge the fact that what that broadway is has this, and it's obviously thorny to talk about particularly as a, as a white male who's working on this show but it broadway has historically been for like rich old white people and it's um this show as the producing team and something that I'm proud to say is like, we take accessibility incredibly seriously because the last thing I want is one of my friends or peers, um, particularly a friend or peer of color, which this show is very much for them and celebrating people of color um, and, and, and giving them and giving them, them a, a voice and a platform. Um, the last thing I want is for somebody to say like, Oh, like a Broadway show. Like I cannot, I can't afford that. And because it's 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 not what it should be about. And it's obviously a commercial venture, but like there is a way there are ways around that to um, to make sure that everybody who should who needs to see the show is going to see the show um, without making the tickets um, inaccessibly expensive. And so, who who are your dream, or who is the 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 production's dream audience members? Then, who what are the different maybe types of people that are coming to see this show, and what are those different responses that you're sort of hearing? Who, who or what are those dream audience members like for you and everyone involved in this production? It's a really great question. Um, we, you know, the invited dress, the entire mezzanine was taken up by Black identified high school students um, that were seeing the show for free. And so I don't think that the show is necessarily for high school students because it's kind of NC-17. But I think um, from, from, a, from a political perspective, obviously, it's very important to me that, we, that the Broadway audience is reflective of the population of New York or as, as an extension of the population of our country. Um, you know, take that as you will. I think that that's like diversity on Broadway, particularly because it's you know, Broadway is, is, is literally the only art form that we export as Americans. That's, I mean, obviously cinema, but like theater, Broadway and musical theater in particular was, 
it was like invented in America. Um, and so, I mean, not theater, of course, that was the, the Greeks had that one unlocked, but the, like musical theater is, is completely an American export. And so like the fact that I think one of the most salient images of American culture is so predominantly white in its audience base, I think is how can you possibly reconcile that with having a racially diverse country? You know, it is, it is, a, it is one of our primary cultural exports and one of the primary reasons that people come to that tourists come to New York is to see Broadway. And like, um, so my, my ideal audience is to, is people that, that reflect what Americans look like. And then also, and that's not only, that's not only to say um, people of color. I think that like, I think white people should see the show as well. I just think that because it is, it is about giving um, black people a voice uh, through a, through a cultural medium that, that otherwise oftentimes does not. Um, and I think that, that white people need to hear that message. Not, not, I don't think as much as black people, but I think that they, that it is important for, for white audiences to see the show as well. And so now that it's open and, um, when is the show, um, hopefully running until, uh, January 19th. That's a nice healthy run then, huh? I know. And we actually, we actually just, um, announced a two week extension by popular demand because the show has been selling for us. Thank you. So we, um, it was 17 weeks and we just extended to 19 weeks. So it's going to the journey. Amazing. Um, and what's next? I mean, what's, what's the next, do we have a next project? Do we, do we have something that we're aspiring to? Always searching. What's next on the, on the docket? I am working for a producer who is producing, um, the, he's producing the revival of music band next season. That's with, um, Hugh Jackman, Sutton Foster. Uh, he's, he's producing West Side Story, um, the revival on Broadway next season. He's producing Lehman Trilogy, which is a wonderful play that's transferring to Broadway from off-Broadway next season, as well as a revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, starring Laurie Metcalf. Um, so that's like, those are obviously like, like large scale commercial projects that I'm going to be actually working on pretty intimately because he's the, he's the lead producer and I'm his, um, theater assistant slash associate. So it's going to be very much, uh, hand, all hands on deck for those. Next so you're year. in it. You're, you're getting your hands dirty. Bro, my hands are filthy. I can't even begin to tell you. So as we sort of start to wrap up the conversation, uh, anything you'd like to plug, please, um, please, please, please follow me on Instagram, follow good cooks on Instagram at good cooks, N Y C G O O D C O O K S N Y C. Um, so that you can find our show dates and come see my show. It's super fun and super low key and tickets are $10 and you'll be among good company and you'll get free food. Well, food for $10. Um, and then, and go see, oh, well, it's going to be closed by then, but go see if you're in one of the 28 states where it's touring, go see Mr. Jared Korak's production of The Pout Pout Fish um, through TheaterWorks USA. And you can look online uh, to see if that's coming to a state near you. It is coming to South Florida, and I think at a few different locations. So um, especially if you're one of our South Florida listeners, um, give that a look. And we're, hopefully we can talk to Jared about that experience in the, the coming weeks as well. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. We always end with this question, and that question is, what is the one piece of art you would want our listeners to check out 
right now if they could. We're talking uh, movies, podcasts, albums, something that they could book, something that they could um, from their phone at the store pick up and enjoy and digest. What is that one recommendation you want to make for our listeners right now? May I say slave play or is that uh, too you, is that too you on cannot the cannot say slave play. <laughs> um I you know what, Tyler, you're gonna love this one. I would recommend reading Blasted by Sarah Kane. Yes. That is a that is a play that exploded my brain and made me want to work in theater for the rest of my life, and I would highly recommend it to anybody. Do you have a strong stomach? And uh, do you know where our listeners could pick that play up? Uh, talk to me. Great. Okay, so. <laughs> or you can, I mean, you can find it at any, at any drama bookstore. Any drama bookstore or call Luke Catler at 954. Oh, yeah, no, uh, oh that's fine. You can give myself one. I don't care. Email me, whatever. <laughs> find me on Facebook. And we'll be sure to put uh, links to tickets to Slave Play and Good Cooks in the show notes. So um, you can just go ahead and open your episode back up on your phone and and um, click any of the links to check out what Luke is up to. But Luke, thanks so much for joining us, buddy. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks, Tyler. That was awesome. Thank you all for joining us for tonight's episode of Listen Well, a Lovewell podcast. Special thanks again to Luke for joining us at Lovewell HQ for our great conversation. Be sure to subscribe and we will save your seat for next time. Until then, this is Tyler Grimes reminding you to listen well, Create well, love well. Good night.